Give it up, baby. I've studied all your moves. Yeah, study this! <laughs> What's good, everybody? Welcome to the Forbidden Technique podcast on the Fightsite Podcast Network. Myself, your host, Silas Martin, my co-host, as always, Christian Reynolds. And today, we have got a hell of a UFC card to get into. A UFC 280, pretty much the most stacked pay-per-view we've seen all year, with two uh, extremely fascinating title fights at the top of it. We're also uh, going to be saying some stuff about uh, the Fight Night card headlined by Alexa Grasso versus Viviana Araujo. But that card was kind of whatever, and we're probably going to have to dedicate a good bit of time to this pay-per-view. So let's just get right on into it. Charles Oliveira, Chucky Olives, taking on Islam Makachev, Izzy Mac. That's what people call him, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, fascinating fight. Is what I'm going to call him from now on. Ostensibly two grappling specialists with, like, totally opposing styles. But, of course, Charles Oliveira is just, like, the most offensively dynamic fighter in the entire fucking sport. Whereas Islam Makachev, one of the most, like, controlled and, like, less wacky and dynamic and violent people at the top of lightweight... And two guys who have been made to look like unkillable gods on the ground by their recent run. Obviously, both are extremely good grapplers in their own right. And as I say, with a, with a huge style clash in the way that they grapple. But like I say, their recent competition has kind of made them look a, a lot more unbeatable than, than, than they actually are. Charles Oliveira, of course, a fantastic submission specialist, has has the submission record for the UFC has like a really deep jujitsu game where like every submission threat is a legitimate threat that forces you to move. And in every single transition, he has a new thing that he can threaten. And, but you know, people have gotten in his guard and beaten him up at points like, you know, Michael Chandler and Kevin Lee got on top of him, landed some okay ground a pound before they got finished. Uh, Paul Felder, dropped Charles with an elbow in the clinch and then got on his guard and pounded him out. And he's had something of a history of uh, Michael Chiesa-ing himself, where he's just, like, so confident that he's the superior grappler in the matchup that he just flings himself into wild situations that end up getting him tapped. There's normally some context to that. Like, I mean, Ricardo Lamas, he missed weight horribly against Anthony, you know, Anthony Pettis, had a war with him and kicked the shit out of his body and is just, like, really good at escaping back control specifically. And then you have Islam Makachev, uh, the Khabib protege, who does a bunch of the same stuff, but is, like, maybe more technically refined, particularly as a striker, but is just, like, way less dynamic athletically, still uh, clearly immensely physically strong, um, and has a game that 
and he has a ton of different um, wrestling entries, both like good shots and like he's just a horse in the clinch. Um, and he's just like really solid on top and kind of in the inverse to Charles Oliveira, he just wants to like hold you in positions where he gives you like escape routes that funnel you into worse and worse positions that allow him to pass, get to mount, take the back, you know, and he's an absolute terror from all of these positions. Um, but I do have a feeling that given all of this stuff, the grappling dynamics are, you know, just the fact that uh, it has been basically instant death as soon as it hits the ground for um, all of the recent opponents for both of these guys. And that is just not going to be the case in this fight. And I kind of just expect that to then, like, uh, mostly cancel itself out where we're going to end up with the old uh, K1 grappler match where you have to assume Charles Oliveira is gonna obliterate islam makachev uh, so christian you are um the number one charles Oliveira stand on the internet so give us your uh, extremely balanced analysis of this style matchup well I, I think i'm gonna start off from like saying where i think makachev could win and it's that if he really is diligent about not moving backwards he could keep charles in a, a constant state of having to defensively grapple and maybe wear down Charles over time because Makhshev's a pretty fucking bulletproof up to this point defensive grappler as well as like being very good at maintaining position. But I just like he could wear down Charles and maybe submit him late in the fourth if I had to give him like the his best path to victory. But you got to go through so much fucking shit with Charles Oliveira to get that. And Charles Oliveira has submitted some really fucking difficult to submit people. Yeah, and he's also an extremely dangerous, like constantly offensively minded striker. You know, Islam Makachev, he's a perfectly serviceable striker, but um, it's mostly in service of his grappling game. You know, he's got uh, he's got a nice long southpaw jab that he can use to get into range responsibly. He's got a left hand that he can use to punch into the clinch, and he's uh, got a good left kick that he can use to stand people up for shots. And, you know, he also gets to strike with the confidence of knowing that his opponent definitely doesn't want to grapple with him. Now, uh, spoiler alert, that is Charles Oliveira's thing. Um, and I just can't see Makachev taking the initiative early to be able to push Charles back or to be able to hang in exchanges with him because we've seen Islam Makachev get, like, instantly slept just because he was overthrowing and doesn't really have doesn't really have built-in defense after he throws. And he just got knocked the fuck out in, like, a minute or two by Adriano Martins. So, you know, A, seeing him getting knocked out because he was just, like, pulling back out of range with his chin up in the air and Charles Oliveira being supremely dangerous in those transitional moments. And um, also just the fact that I've seen him get knocked dead instantly. If I had reason to believe that he had a Khabib-esque chin then this might be a different situation. But even if he gets on top, I I just I expect Charles to be able to be negative enough on, on bottom to be able to get the fight back to where he needs it. If not, just have even dynamic scrambles with Islam Makachev, which I hope we get to see some of, because it, it would be cool. But there is also not an indistinct possibility that Charles Oliveira is just going to walk up to Islam Makachev and uh, knock him out in like the first exchange. Um, Makachev's southpaw, right? Yeah. Okay. Charles doesn't really have a problem with southpaws to this point. Like he handled Dustin Poirier on the feet, but also it's a 
I say handled lightly because he did get dropped several times, but they were with the hands, and you could not really make a more different style dynamic than Poria on the feet versus Makashev on the feet. And the range is very different. Like Makashev is is more of a long range like Taekwondo kicker that like stands southpaw and then will like kick into takedown entries, which is stuff that can work on Charles. But Charles has really good kick defense in particular. Like you can criticize his punching defense as much as you want. I'm not really going to give you any resistance towards that. Like his boxing defense is definitely a lot farther behind than his kicking defense. But Charles is genuinely very good at defending kicks at this point. Like he's been fucked up by kicks enough in his career to where he just kind of had to. Uh, So I don't think Makachev's going to have much success with any of his kicking offense and i could see him maybe exploding distance to to land like a a power hook but at this point now we've seen charles eat justin gaethje dustin poirier and michael chandler's power and be generally fine would be really funny if he got knocked out by islam makachev now i mean it would make sense in like a weird dystopian way because it's like oh okay he can only be knocked out by a guy that isn't really that good at knocking people out but you give him someone that can actually knock someone out and he's just fucking immortal because he's like paying attention to it but i I, you can't expect that i feel like that's such a leap to try and predict that but i'm really expecting charles to just push islam back knee him in the body uh fuck him up in the clinch pretty heavily get taken down while doing it but after landing a couple good elbows or knees and then end up scrambling and then in transition maybe have to ward off some submissions while throwing up some of his own and then get back to the feet at some point and get more offense off and really no matter whether or not charles is on bottom or top i think he's going to be the one getting more literal offense off like like damaging offense opposed to just positional efficacy so I, it's a rough fucking matchup for Makashev that he can still win. Like, he definitely can. He's elite, undeniably. I just think Charles is the best fighter in the sport right now. Yeah, and just, you, you have to assume that Makachev's route to victory is mostly going to be sitting in Charles' guard and beating him up. Uh, and of course, like, uh, Makachev has looked, like, unstoppable when he's, like, doing that stuff to people. But I would like to remind people of that Armin Sarukian fight, which was Armin Sarukian's UFC debut. And um, I personally think Armin Sarukian, with exactly the skill depth that he had on that night, could have won that fight with like minor strategic adjustments, just because Armin Sarukian is pretty good at everything, but doesn't shine as elite in any singular area. And, you know, he gave Islam Makachev real trouble by just, by just having solid takedown defense and scrambling and being just a faster, more dynamic striker than Islam Makachev, while not actually being a particularly deep, deeper one or being that dangerous in singular shots. And, you know, the real reason that he lost that fight is because he just has MMA brain and Armin Sarukian has to do all of MMA to all of his opponents to feel like he's winning. And he kept initiating uh, takedowns and would lose a scramble. So, yeah, just like worth reminding people of like both guys like mortality on the ground um people made something of charles Oliveira's run before he got to the title but he has like beaten several provably elite fighters and like has had a solid depth of of competition throughout his entire career islam makachev has like literally not fought someone this good i know that's reductive but he has fought uh strikers who are terrified of grappling with him and grapplers who are worse than him. And 
I think Charles has the goods as a grappler to nullify what Islam wants to do to him. And I think he is so further along um, offensively as a striker and so much more offensively potent and so much more insistent about pressure and will be able to in this fight because of his confidence in his grappling abilities. I just cannot see Islam hanging on the feet in this fight. Um, I, I, I don't think it's that reductive to even say that Islam hasn't really beaten anyone because, in my opinion, the the best fighter he's beaten was Bobby Green on 10 days notice, which is not nothing, certainly. Like, he's a great fighter. If he beat, like, current form Sarukin, I'd still be like, cool, he beat a guy that's relatively unproven despite definitely being good and passing the eye test. Like, this would be a... This is a dramatic step up from Akshev relative to Charles. Like, Charles, this is a different style matchup than we've seen him fight as an elite fighter. But it is not a matchup we've never seen him fight. And it's also... Like, just the level matters about as much as the style difference. Like, if someone's as far along in their career as Charles is, it's not that useful to be like, oh, he he hasn't seen this type of style matchup. He's seen every style matchup, and he's beaten elite strikers that have a, a pretty opposite styles, but they're still elite. Like there are, are things that are overlapping that every fighter at the level that Charles is at, and Dustin are at, and Gaethje are at are are capable of. Like Gaethje is really fucking hard to wrestle. Uh, he's been submitted by Khabib and Charles. He's difficult to wrestle. Dustin Poirier really fucking difficult to grapple. Like, he's, he's not just difficult to grapple. He's literally good at jiu-jitsu. And he was pretty much nullified the entire time he was there. And Makashev has had fights against good grapplers, but more just kind of annoying style matchups that Charles can't really just run into an annoying style matchup. You have to also be elite. You can't just be a good matchup. Yeah, basically, all the MMA math you need is that Islam Makachev went to decision with Nick Lenz. And Charles Oliveira wouldn't dream of it. Yeah, and you also people bring up Charles losing to Paul Felder in this in 2017, but Makachev was going to decision with Nick Lance in 2017, and if you had given that Makachev a fight against Paul Felder, he would have gotten fucking destroyed. You you're allowed to get beaten by someone really good whenever you're not at your peak, without like degrading your overall skill set. Yes, which is you know reasonable to ex- extend uh, Islam the same line of thinking for his loss to Adriano Martins. I think it just shows. Uh... Shows a harder physical limitation. Yeah. Like, sometimes you just get dusted whenever you're not good yet. Or not as good as you're going to become. It's okay. I I do think this fight is going to prove to people whether or not Makshev is, like, he whether or not he's this fucking, like, force. Because even if he puts up a really good fight against Charles, that's not nothing. That's fucking impressive. And the fact that he does have a chance of winning, like he could wear down Charles and get into a fourth round. Like I, I don't think Charles Oliveira has been to a fourth round in his UFC career. Yeah, which is insane, but it goes to show how quick his his style is. And Makshev is a guy who he's able to nullify people by taking away their A game. But if your A game kind of falls into it, he's just gonna have a really fast paced match with you. And I don't think there's anyone that can go at Charles Oliveira's pace and beat him without outlasting his pace. So if he can outlast the pace, then maybe he can win. But I'm leaning towards Charles Oliveira overwhelming Makhachev, pushing him wherever he wants, and physically bullying him whenever they're in clinch situations. And anytime they're on the ground, I think he's going to 
deny what Makachev's trying to put out. And I'm going to say Charles Oliveira by vicious knockout in the first round on the feet. Yeah, me too. Uh, something to be wary of is that Makachev has really good game planning on his side. Uh, Habib is unironically one of like the best strategists in the sports history. He just had a very limited, not even limited, he just had a very particular skill set that he had to leverage a bunch of different strategies into into getting a win against certain matchups. Like the, the Gaethje fight, he fought against type and was like running at someone throwing teeps or, or like front snap kicks to kind of deny the leg kick a little bit and also keep him pushed back and just get small attritional damage. Like just small shit like that, that if well, and he like did a new wrestling move that we'd never seen him do in his entire career specifically. Cause it was a thing that worked against Justin Gaethje. Yeah. Like, like he's, he's definitely was not adaptable despite being uh one note. It was just, he was fantastic at that one note. And and then he could, he could fucking change it up a little bit if if he needed to. And I th- don't know how much Makashev is capable of that, but having Khabib on his team is definitely an advantage. Still, uh, we ride for Chucky Olives on this podcast. Yeah, you know, take everything we're saying with a grain of salt, because we were always going to pick Charles Oliveira. We've known we're going to pick Charles Oliveira in this fight for like three years now. Yeah, well, and we would have had someone on the podcast who would pick Islam Makachev if we knew anyone who's picking Islam Makachev. Yeah, everyone we know is picking Charles Oliveira as well. So we're also bandwagoning, except like, I don't know, I'm, I'm at least in the front seat of the bandwagon. Okay, so co-main event, we've got another absolutely fantastic uh, title fight. Aljamain Sterling defending the bantamweight title against two-time champion TJ Dillashaw. Super interesting matchup. Uh, one where as soon as I heard that it was booked, I had like just like a glaring gut reaction surface level read that jumped out at me that I haven't really been able to escape, but I've thought about this fight a lot and it's pretty difficult for me. Um, You've got like two, two guys who are definitely very good strikers with like wonky styles that annoy me in weird ways. Um, like, without Jermaine Sterling, it's just, like, he's just too funky. He has a bunch of weird mechanical inefficiencies where he just, like, loops and overthrows and dips his head down way too hard. Um, and with TJ Dillashaw, is the fact that he, like, will not get into range without doing a shift. And he just fucking switches stance constantly and, like, does a bunch of, like, flashy footwork that doesn't really have any function beyond looking cool sometimes sometimes it'll just be like way out uh, at a range where there are no offensive options for either guy and he's just doing some fucking idle animation alley shuffle bullshit that being said he's obviously like he's really creative about covering distance he does definitely use his shifts very well and i think you really see him shine when he's able to like plant in the pocket and extend exchanges and just if you're moving away from TJ Dillashaw trying to figure out what he wants to throw at you, then he's extremely dangerous uh, covering distance. But uh, he does get hurt fairly routinely by people who who just like, well, no matter what he's trying to hit me with, he's going to fucking cross his feet on the way in. So I just need to stand there and punch him in the mouth as he does that. But that's not necessarily something I expect Aljamain Sterling to do. Uh, I think Aljamain Sterling actually, he has a weird amount of 
Dominic Cruz in him. And TJ Dillashaw, a lot of people think he beat Dominic Cruz, which is fair, um, but to just write it off as a robbery is, like, disingenuous and not looking at the reasons that he lost, which is, like, he was just uh, winging power shots at a janky, elusive guy who just stayed really mobile, and TJ, TJ was mostly just... Uh, trying to hunt him down with like just big single kicks and like hook combos and stuff. Um, just just really started chasing Dominic Cruz and was never able to really set his feet and uh, find the shots later in exchanges. If Dominic Cruz was just able to just like constantly keep himself off the cage and deny those exchanges, uh, Aljamain Sterling can do some of that. But then there's also the fact that you know Dominic Cruz was able to kind of somewhat nullify TJ Dillashaw's pressure with takedown attempts because TJ Dillashaw is remarkably difficult to out-wrestle, you know, and even Dominic Cruz was getting really nice, clean, well-timed reactive shot entries on TJ Dillashaw, and a lot of them would get stuffed. Um, and Aljamain Sterling, he's just, he's just not that kind of wrestler. He doesn't have the kind of timing on his shots that Dominic Cruz did, even at that point in his career. But... Uh, it is potentially just like way more instantly fucking catastrophic if Aljamain Sterling is even able to get a decent entry on you. Because TJ Dillashaw, and like, you know, because you now time to get to my big greed for this fight, which I'm sure is really obvious. Uh, TJ Dillashaw gives his back in every single scramble. Every time he gets taken down, he will not accept guard and he just gets to his knees and stands up. Uh, I can't think of anyone he's fought in his career who was really poised to take advantage of that in the way that Aljamain Sterling is. And it could just be entire rounds gone or all the fight just over if Aljamain gets even a decent takedown entry on him. But he literally might not even be able to get those entries. So it's a, it's a really hard matchup for me. And it seems like it's going to be super one-sided no matter what happens because... Um, if Aljamain gets a takedown early and gets on the back and, you know, he, either he could just finish the fight instantly or bank an entire round that makes TJ a lot more tentative and just opens up Aljamain's options because Aljamain, he, he can be, he can be elusive on the back foot, but I really think his striking game is at his best when he's able to establish the takedown threat and like that just opens up all of his options on the feet and allows him to pressure. And if, if he can do that, then, you know, the fight could really just snowball for him. But likewise, if he can't get the fight to the ground at all and is conceding the back foot, uh, it seems like a difficult kind of fight to for him to sustain for five rounds trying to consistently outmaneuver TJ Dillashaw. I can see all of that. I... On the feet, it's hard, a hard dynamic to imagine happening just because they're both very... They both sh just shift a lot, and TJ doesn't just shift. He just switches randomly. Uh, and I think a lot of his footwork flaws in, in terms of doing things just for the sake of novelty have diminished as he's gotten older. Like, he's a lot more rooted in just doing the things that work, even if it's a little unique. But anytime it's this type of matchup, it's hard to imagine someone getting knocked out by just a clean shot. Uh, in this matchup in particular, it's hard to imagine that without it being Dwayne Ludwig giving like a fucking picture perfect read to TJ. 
especially given that neither of them is like a pinpoint counterpuncher and the type of ways that they would will enter at each other leave a lot of openings but for aljo it's really just leaves openings for tj to like get a bad entry like he'll like tj will just like cross his feet as he's entering and then kind of squares hips or squares hip at some point and then just get taken down and then have to stand up and rebase and get back to his feet but as you said he's liable to get his back taken while doing that but then for tj to knock out aljo it's really just if aljo does a shitty shift going backwards and then tj steps in with like a wing overhand or he can extend an exchange and then get aljo doing that shit he was doing in the Yan, the second Yan fight where he would just lean really hard to one side or duck really low. And it just seems like someone that's as consistent about receiving good corner work and someone that is as consistent about being able to find reads on people in combination as TJ Dillashaw is. It's just hard to imagine that someone isn't going to get fucked up really fucking badly. I'm leaning toward TJ winning. Yeah, particularly TJ Dillashaw, he's very good at uh, chasing people back with with high kicks that he disguises off of his off of his punches and like shifts into. Um, yeah, as Aljamain Sterling will duck down really hard as a defensive reaction. Uh, I think if there's any shot that's going to just end the fight instantly, it's going to be something like that. Um, that said, both guys pretty fucking durable. Uh, both have been finished. Uh, TJ's not really been cleanly knocked out and uh, Aljamain of course got knocked out by Marlon Marias but by like by the most brutal shot imaginable that would knock literally anyone out I I also find situations like how TJ started the sequence that knocked out Cody Garbrandt to or not started the sequence but uh, like right towards the end where he just did a a switch while about in the pocket and it set him up in a good position to land the the finishing shot that type of thing i think is kind of gonna have no drawbacks against aljamain sterling because aljo his timing is good on on his entries normally it's just like the mechanics are kind of shitty or the point of it isn't to actually get the takedown it's to just get attached to you and then like change position from there and aljamain is is a fantastic grappler, but TJ is so fucking consistent about just denying people whose entire goal is to grapple him, which he hasn't fought that many of, but normally anyone who it's, it's even like a part of their game, he just shuts it out. And he is so much more consistent about being a game planner. Whereas Aljamain Sterling's only fight I can think of where he even fought like the most smart and correct game plan possible was the second Yan fight, which is his most recent fight. So that's definitely, definitely noteworthy. I think he had um I think he had really good preparation against um Pedro Munoz and Jimmy Rivera as well. I th- I think tactically he had uh good ideas against both except Jimmy Rivera I think it's more just the style and then for Pedro I think his actual approach was stupid as fuck. Like trying to just volume Pedro Munoz and and exchange them and just have like smart shot selection and stay very diligent it worked but I don't think that's the smartest thing to do and it seemed like it was kind of the fight was eventually going to get away from him got dicey I, I think that the actual idea of wanting to even 
entertain the time on the feet with Pedro was bad, especially with what we kind of know now about Pedro just being a lot smaller of a bantamweight than at that point people were giving him credit for. Because he was always considered a small bantamweight, but in hindsight, I do really think Aljo could have just controlled him. I don't know. Pedro is ridiculously hard to out-wrestle. He is fantastic, but he's also very small. He's got concrete hips and he has the instant guillotine threat. He does. I I just think that that's not really something that Aljo would even need to worry about much uh with like I think he could have pretty much I think he could have for me get the fight. And and just like made it kind of boring. And the fact that it was so entertaining is kind of a liability. Uh especially since TJ is not the largest bantamweight, but he's not small like he he's physically imposing in his own right he has insane cardio for the weight he's about average size he hits serviceably hard and he's really good at finding moments that he can land with like big power and Aljamain Sterling has gotten hurt in multiple fights at this point or multiple situations at least if not fights uh Yan in the first in their first fight being the main one where he got dropped really hard by a right hand off a shift a bigger puncher, but also a lot more patience, uh, but not necessarily in like a way that's conducive to beating Aljamain Sterling. And I think Alja or I think TJ is just going to keep getting similar situations like that while getting smaller payoffs, but he's going to get a lot more smaller payoffs. Yeah, but I, f- I feel like he needs to get a lot of them, and that's what's making it hard for me to pick him in this fight, even though I do think this is. Uh, just an extremely hard fight to actually call a result in. I'm pretty much always going to end up picking the guy who I think has the more just instant path to victory if something goes even slightly wrong for the other guy. I think Aljamain Sterling gets to be the one who has the grappling threat in this matchup. Um, TJ, obviously a phenomenal wrestler and grappler in his own right, but I think he's going to be defensively minded with that in this fight. And... Like I say, if Aljamain gets one good entry on him where TJ has to ter- turn his back to to stand up, things can go downhill really fucking quickly. And while I do think the dynamic on the feet probably does favor TJ the longer the fight goes, just as we saw against Yad, even when the wrestling kind of stops working, uh, Aljamain is able to use it as a thing to keep him in the fight by putting his opponent in just a state of defense. Well, I'm mostly just going to pick Aljamain Sterling by a second round submission because uh, I knew you were going to pick TJ Dillashaw and I wanted to disagree with you. That's fair. I, I think I'm leaning towards TJ by a fourth round or fifth round TKO because just, I've just seen him do that so many times against really hard matchups or not necessarily hard matchups for him, just like hard fighters to do that to. Like, yeah, I'm thinking that uh, the first two rounds are going to look like they're pretty competitive, but overall, Aljo's not going to get much offense off, and he's going to wear himself out, and then I think it's going to be very one-sided after the first two rounds. I think TJ's going to take over completely and shut him out. If not, knock him out really bad, because TJ, even in his attrition fights, like... You know, you can look at the brow finishes. He doesn't really just, like, knock him stiff unconscious. He just hits him in, I believe it was the second fight, with 28 strikes in one combination that all land very cleanly. 
And I could see him doing that with someone who's as exaggerated in their defense as Aljamain Sterling is. Like, you know, TJ Dillashaw isn't, he's very rote, but in a way that's conducive to adaptation. It was kind of strange to say. Like, he can, he's not much of a kneer, but he'll knee the fuck out of you if it's like the thing to do. Uh, if, if he's given an option, like if he hurts you, he'll get slap a double, double collar tie on and just start kneeing the fuck out of you. And I could see him buzzing Aljo with something kind of light and then just snowballing really hard. Because TJ Dillashaw at his best, he is one of the best snowballing fighters in the sport, like Max Holloway level almost. It, and even then, it's kind of easier to stop Max's snowball because Max will still try and maintain like a, a level of finesse while TJ will just be like, fuck it, we're brawling now. And But he's still very diligent about it. And... Yeah, and Dwayne Ludwig has some issues as a coach that should be addressed, and I probably will address them if he if TJ loses. But also his strength just leans so fucking hard into beating this type of matchup. Like I can see him giving very targeted corner advice that is just necessary and turns the entire fight after just a round of seeing what Aljo is bringing. So I think if TJ gets out of the first round, his chances of winning go up so fucking high. And yeah, and I've not seen TJ Dillashaw just get just get submitted in the first round as an elite fighter. Like it just hasn't happened. And he he got fucked up by John Dodson, one of the most athletic guys ever, or really early in his career. That that's kind of like the the worst indictment of him being like a not the fastest starter. He got knocked out by Henry Cejudo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the, you know the weight cut. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, too much context yeah. of that to to really like give it much ground. And then he looked fine against Corey Sanhagen. Yeah. Years later. That being said, he is kind of old. Uh, I do think he lost to Corey Sanhagen. Um, I agree. And um it has been suggested that his kind of maybe somewhat diminished wrestling ability in that fight was uh, down to him getting his knee exploded in a heel hook in the first round. That is also pertinent to this matchup. Yeah, but Aldo's not really like the same type of jiu-jitsu scrambler that Sandy is. No, but he can do it all. Well, yeah, he's flat out better at grappling than Corey Sandhagen. I just don't think he's as likely to just randomly heel hook him in the middle of a weird exchange after doing a flying knee that gave him a triangle. No, I don't think he's going to do that exact sequence. Like, Corey Sandhagen did a flying knee, landed a triangle, like, ended up with a triangle after landing the flying knee, and TJ just bulldozed through the knee and tried to finish the takedown. And then, in a weird scramble, he got his knee exploded and then still proceeded to go the rest of the four rounds against a dynamic striker who can actually land pinpoint counters on him. And he he hurt TJ. It, it, like, really nothing could stop TJ from trying to put his fight on Corey, even though I still think that TJ lost. Yeah, and then and then TJ, his chin's still all there. Like, I don't expect Aljamain to get something fucky, like a front kick as, as TJ's dipping weird as he enters. Or, like, if TJ drop shifts into a knee, I'll be really surprised. I, I, don't, I don't expect Aljamain to particularly hurt. Uh, TJ Dillashaw on the feet like I just don't think like you see he has the 
like depth or mechanics that Corey Sanhagen did to be able to um, you know catch TJ on the way in, as I was talking about earlier, but also be able to like throw stuff away to draw out TJ Dillashaw's defensive reactions and then be able to follow up with like new layers. Yeah, when I try and picture the fight in my head, I just keep seeing TJ eventually lose all respect for Aljamain on the feet after a few body kicks land where he then limp legs off of Aljo catching the kick, but the body kick still landed. So I just kind of think he's going to realize, oh, I can kick this guy still, even though he's a really good grappler. And normally TJ kind of has to learn that mid-fight because he will he doesn't throw away tactics just because of a matchup ever. Like, he's not going to stop shifting just because the guy's a really sneaky counterpuncher and he's not going to stop uh, throwing kicks just because someone's a really good grappler. And I think that type of... But that was one of the main ways that Dominic Cruz kept getting him down, though, yes. was timing his kicks. But that was seven years ago. Against a much more consistently strategically adaptable fighter. Yeah, and uh, well, and just and just a straight-up better shot wrestler yeah. than Aljamain Sterling. And better well. boxer. Uh, um... Or at least, like, someone who has more of an understanding of, like, defensive boxing, even if it's very unorthodox. Like, it's still effective. Like, it's working to this day. It's more the fact that he's... It's more the fact that he's very comfortable doing what he does, and he can maintain it for five rounds. Whereas I... Whereas Aljamain still has a very... There's very discomfort shown in most of his defensive situations on the feet like he's he's learned enough about striking to be able to fuck someone up if he is comfortable but it's pretty easy to take him out of his comfort zone like no but yeah like i said he he's you know his confidence as a striker thrives when all of his game is clicking and he can push his opponent back and keep them guessing and that is a hard ask against tj dillashaw and and things like the tj has done in his career, he he had random fights where he just looked fantastic. Like against Joe Soto, he looked like one of the better body punchers in the sports history for like a fight. Uh, against uh, against Cody Garbrandt in the first fight, he showed severe kicking adaptability, which he he had shown in shades before, but he had never just like found the read and then leveraged that into getting a win shortly after. Uh, in in the second Cody fight or Cody fight, he didn't even really worry too much about the kicks. He just kind of did his own game while having the confidence in his back pocket of knowing what he had to do because it had worked before. Just did it quicker and didn't get dropped the second time. Yeah, it, and something like that where you know he he's had difficult first rounds before, but if he knows what to do, then the first rounds are kind of easy for him. Like he's able to start quickly and with Aljamain's cardio liabilities that seem to have gone away, but still aren't fully gone. Like he, he's still, he has human cardio now at this point, I would say just very good human cardio. Whereas TJ has fucking ridiculous cardio. You know, you can say EPO all you want. Like he's still probably on it. Let's be, let's be real. Yeah, probably. But the, the, if he is, then it gives him ridiculous cardio. So it's, yeah, it's, like, you know, it is what it is. And like, that's not gone. He still kept a crazy pace against Corey Sandhagen. Yeah. Whereas Aljamain, I think, has like perfectly fine cardio and like fought in a much smarter way that was going to preserve it over five rounds in the second Yan fight. Like in the first fight, he just, he gassed himself out because he was flailing. He felt like he couldn't stop moving forward and throwing strikes. He was going to lose instantly. And then as soon as he couldn't move forward and throw strikes, he started losing. And 
Yan is not as good of a defensive wrestler when he's striking as TJ Dillashaw is. And I think it's something that people have been kind of giving Yan too much credit for. Like he, he, he was giving, he gives his back a lot too, but he doesn't really have the same like psychopathic diligence about trying to stop that from happening. If it's consistently happening. And also, he didn't have a corner in that fight. Like, there's context that that leads you to believe that um, it wasn't just Aljamain looking better in the second fight, which it definitely was. Uh, but it was also Yan looking worse than he had looked prior. Speaking of which, we've got a Piotr Yan fight to talk about. He's fighting Sean O'Malley. Is there even much to talk about? Well, I mean, it's funny. There's absolutely no reason to expect Sean O'Malley not to get completely fucking destroyed. Um, He's long and mobile and quick, and he has some foot speed, and, like, you know, you could maybe see him theoretically giving Yan some issues with that stuff in the way that Corey Sandhagen was able to in, you know, the first couple of rounds of his fight with P.O.T. Yan. Um, but Sean O'Malley, you know, he's not as good as Corey Sanhagen. Um, Corey Sanhagen is ridiculously durable, but Sean O'Malley is like a generally pretty frail, will fall apart from his own offense. And Sanhagen is a miles deeper boxer. Yeah. And, and like understands defensive tactics in a way that O'Malley has shown no indication of knowing. Yeah. Um, Corey Sanhagen also has fantastic cardio. Sean O'Malley has faded in. Every third round he's gotten to where the first two rounds weren't an absolute cruise where he was doing whatever he wanted at a pretty manageable pace. And even in some of those earlier in his career, he would still gas. Yeah, I I do want to throw out like the three specific situations I could see uh, Yan actually being hurt. And there's two normal ones. It's like, okay, maybe O'Malley can get like a real slick right hand on Yan as Yan enters. But even then, Yan's chin's really fucking good. I can't imagine that O'Malley wouldn't just break his hand. Uh, in in like maybe hurt him, but like he would just break his hand and then not be able to follow up very much. Uh, I could see him landing a really hard shin to chin head kick because you know O'Malley's very fast and he has shown some slick setups for head kicks. And the thing about uh, slick setups is they work on everyone. You know, a Yan isn't infallible. You can land things that work on him. It, or I could imagine Yan falling over after something and then doing an up kick as Yan pursues him to the ground. Those are the three scenarios I can see Yan being like literally hurt. I thought you were like going to say flying knee. Affected. No. I, if Corey Sanhagen isn't going to flying knee you, there's no fucking way that Sean O'Malley's going to. Yeah, but the thing is, Piotr Yan, he was very specifically prepared for Corey Sanhagen's flying knee, and he was like literally parrying the flying knee. Whereas he did get flying knee twice by Aljamain Sterling in the first fight. He is, uh, you know. <laughs> You know, he has a good defensive system, but particularly early, he will just, as a kind of rote defensive reaction, just cover up and duck down. You can draw that out and get get, get him with a flying knee. Um, you know, maybe he won't be expecting Sean O'Malley to flying knee him. I think O'Malley's more the type of guy who would just try and front kick him in that scenario. He's And also, that's backing up and flying kneeing. 
or that that'd be him backing up and then O'Malley being able to push him forward into a flying knee. But I can't imagine him actually getting backed up for any reasonable amount of time. No, really, Sean. He has he has to stay mobile on the outside, work his reach, and put volume on Piotian, do all of that without getting fucking murdered. Um, I guess notable that like Yan, he is just like a slow starter. Um, it's kind of just who he is, which I think was like really confirmed by that second Aljamain Sterling fight for me because, you know, here's a guy who he'd already fought like twenty minutes or something with close to um and by the end of that fight was doing whatever he wanted and was absolutely destroying Aljamain Sterling you would have thought that a fighter as smart and adaptable and skilled as Piotian would be able to bring that into a rematch and capitalize on all of the stuff that he built on in the first fight and just start doing it from the first round now instead he was just winging power shots um he you know he wasn't putting out a particularly high volume. He just looked mad and like he was trying to take Aljamain Sterling's head off, but that didn't, it didn't help him. And that is a thing that I am fascinated to see, particularly in the first round in this fight, is that <clears throat> Piotr Jan gets extremely mad in fights when uh, when he's not beating his opponent up. Um, and you, like he, he just gets like visibly extremely angry. Um, and Sean O'Malley is... He, like for a start he looks stupid um and he's annoying and he's really fast so there's there's at least going to be like a period of the first round where i just i just i just can't wait to see how how angry uh piotian gets and if that puts him off and makes him fight kind of stupid and gives o'malley some room to to frustrate and outmaneuver piotian but that is you know, he wasn't able to do that to Pedro Munoz. And Pedro Munoz didn't even really pressure Sean O'Malley, which everyone said he needed to do to win. He just had a kickboxing match with him and won the whatever length of that fight that they had with each other before he, he was out low kicking him so fucking easily. Yeah. Like Sean O'Malley is one of the rare fighters who literally has bad bad low kick defense. It's normally there's some nuance to it, like, oh, this guy guy just kind of fights really good kickers and then gets kicked. Like he was getting kicked up on the on the back end by Chris Moutinho. And that's not an exaggeration. He was you look at the amount of kicks, he was visibly off put by them. And while Yan is actually really good at, at kicking. Like he'll he'll kick you in the leg, he'll kick you in the body, kick you in the head. Yeah, he can cover distance behind them. You know, he can throw stuff away and chase you away with the kicks can use them attritionally you can use them use it as a kill move you know i i think he i think there's going to be one round of maybe even like half a round of it looking like kind of competitive before yan is actually just able to just walk sean o'malley into the fence and do whatever the fuck he wants to him i'm uh picking beauty a second round knockout yeah i'm going to say yan by start to finish like beat down starting in the first round i don't think that it's going to even have a period where O'Malley's having a remote amount of success. If I had seen O'Malley do good against anyone, even close to Yan's caliber of fighter, I would give him more leeway or opportunity to win. But I've seen him get shaken to his core by Chris Moutinho, like a last year or some shit. It's in the first round. 
he was he was like, "Oh no, I've been leg kicked. Fuck." Like he he just hasn't shown anything that would lead me to believe that he could handle someone with Yan's level of durability, even if Yan was a much worse fighter than he is. Uh, Yan is not perfect defensively, but he's also one of the best defensive kickboxers in the sport. He had a in pretty much endless exchange where he was constantly in range against Jose Aldo, and he managed to like figure out Jose Aldo's offense and then start countering him and defending against most of Aldo's offense. And it wasn't just the cardio; he he was making like very specific adjustments. He started defending the body punch by dropping his elbow and then countering with the same arm. Uh, you you look at his fight against Corey Sandhagen. He figured out most of Corey's like tricks to maneuver around him and then started punching with body kicks and uh, whenever Corey would shift or switch stances, which was his corner advice. I, I would like to point out that a good 80% of Yan's adjustments in the Corey Sandhagen fight was just his corner telling him what to do. And then he just didn't change what he was doing in the Aljamain Sterling fight in the second fight. So I, you can, I, I always get annoyed whenever people bring up like one thing about a fighter in at a particular fight, not really performing well. It's like, Oh, is their corner? Oh, is their weight cut? Oh, is this? People always have one for Piotr Yan as well against fucking Jimmy Rivera. It was the jellyfish thing. Yeah, like, but that's one that he won super fucking clean. Yeah, and people still bring it up just because people want to be like, oh, it was a good fight with Jimmy was in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's funny, but, like, I do genuinely think that him not having a corner in the second Aljamain fight was very transformative, and especially if you get to a title fight, like, a 2% difference can change all the thing, and then the fact that he just didn't do adjustments, because he's not a mid-fight adjuster, he gets told adjustments by his corner. Like, he'll figure out some, like, little tactile things, like, in the clinch, he'll figure out how to land certain things that his corner can't really tell him what to do. That was a fantastic performance from Aljamain Sterling, but Piotr Yan, you know, all he needed to do was not give his back in the third round, and he would have won that fight. Pretty much. And I think that his corner could have given him very targeted advice were he to have his normal corner team. And for this fight, I believe he's going to have his normal corner team. And he's going to be fighting the worst fighter he's fought in, like... Is this the worst fighter he's fought in the UFC? No, he, he fought... Um, oh, he fought Teruo Ishihara. Yeah, like, he, he blasted Teruo Ishihara in the first round. I kind of think that's what's going to happen here. Like, he's fought worse fighters than O'Malley and gone three rounds of them, like, against uh, Jinsu Sun. Yeah, but he was ridiculously fucking durable. Yeah, incredibly durable fighter who also could not be more different stylistically. I just think that everything that O'Malley does is incredibly easily punished by Yan's A-game. And then with the added aspect of him having his full power and, like corner team i don't think he's gonna have any difficulty at all i don't think o'malley's even gonna look like he should be in there he's very fast but you know yan fought aldo yeah i'm gonna say first round uh somewhere in the first round o'malley's gonna fall and then he's just gonna get fucking like beaten into mulch I don't think it would take long of him getting beaten into mulch. I think it could be like actually 15 seconds of him being on bottom and then he's finished. Yeah, not out of the question. Um, you know, against Marlon Vera, having your leg compromised shouldn't 
that that shouldn't compromise your defensive grappling game to the point that you literally get knocked out as soon as somebody gets in your guard. Yeah, and I do want to point out, if I'm going to give O'Malley a chance to win, I'm going to say it's like a fucking heel hook or some shit. Oh, we know, we know Piotr Yan hates jiu-jitsu. He hates jiu-jitsu. And, you know, O'Malley did a heel hook in quintet a while ago or, or some, some sort of leg lock. It was, it was a long time ago. And against someone that's not as good as Yan. Wasn't it against uh, Gomi? Yes. Uh, the ghost of... Yeah, so it's like not really indicative, but I don't know, it, it shows, a, shows a principle that he, he likes to do that. So, I, I, Yeah, I but his entire ground game is that he thinks jiu-jitsu is neat. I'm not giving him any chance to win at all. I think the best he can do is make Piotr Yan look slightly mad en route to easily wiping him off of the face of the planet. I think even that is giving him so much more credit than he's earned. I, I don't want it to come off as if I'm, I don't think O'Malley has any skill at all. He definitely has skill, but I just, I will have to see it to believe that he's even belonging to be in a fight with Yan because this is such a dramatic step up from anything he's looked good in. Because he looked bad against Pedro Munoz. He had a very slow-paced fight where he was losing against one of the slower guys in the division as the guy whose shtick is being a speed athlete. A very long one of the smallest athlete. and slowest guys in the division when, yeah, he's the speed athlete who's 10 feet tall. Yeah. And Yan has fought Corey Sandhagen, who is basically a more evolved and more dangerous and more durable, just a flat out better version, even though they fight very differently. But the reason they fight so differently is because Corey Sandhagen has dramatic skill, like proficiencies that O'Malley doesn't even have shades of in his game. Yeah, uh, I think conceptually they're trying to achieve the same thing in a fight yeah. and Corey Sandhagen is way fucking better at it and has way better physical tools for achieving it and it w wasn't enough against Piotr Yan. Maybe could have been over a three-round fight but still wouldn't have been and um, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yan's uh, going to absolutely stomp. Okay. Uh, another ridiculously good fight. This card's fucking bonkers. Benil Dariush, long back Benny, is back fighting uh, Mateusz Gamrot. Um, and people will be picking against Benil Dariush because he's not very athletic, not very durable. Doesn't have the best cardio, but uh, his cardio is okay. He's been knocked out, but he's also like you know, weathered storms in fights where he's been hurt and come back to win really hard. And he's a really good grappler. He's pretty strong. Um, and he hits pretty fucking hard. And at his best, is just, like, really dedicated to pressure. You know, you know, uh, our, our boy Sriram calls him Rafael Uno Anjos. <laughs> just uh, does a lot of the same stuff, just not quite with the same uh, uh, dynamism as RDA. Um, and then Mateusz Gamrot, Kind of his whole thing is just like uh, drowning people in pace wrestling. Like his shots aren't very good. His takedown percentage must be like hilariously low, um, but he'll just keep doing it. You know, he does weird fucking low singles and stuff. Um, and he'll, he'll just keep going at it. And, you know, he, he has really nice jujitsu. And he's not a particularly deep striker, but he's like very confident and aggressive and he's decently athletic. So could be a tricky one for Benil Dariush, but um, 
but Neil Darius just like having, I feel like the depth of a grappler. You know, just, but you know, we've seen Mateusz Gamrot um, essentially beaten twice. One actually, and the other one, he won what I thought was a pretty clear robbery against Armin Sarukian in his last fight. Um, and these were both just fights where he just fought solid grapplers who like he couldn't snowball on with his takedowns and like they just kind of bombed on him with body kicks so that kind of that kind of sounds like something that Benil Dariush is like reasonably well poised to do um and also the fact that you know Benil Dariush himself when you know when he's pushing people back and and throwing with authority he's a fight he, he's like offensively potent and Mateusz Gamrot doesn't have very good defense. Uh, the more I think about the matchup, the more I'm just kind of like assuming that Benny is going to be diligent and not get pulled into Gamrot's fight and then TKO him in the middle round. Because say second round. Wow, I was sure you were going to pick Gamrot. <laughs> I was thinking about it for a while, but then I just kind of think about how spindly he looked against CDF and how he was getting tracked down by a lot of CDF's punches while CDF is kind of about the same amount of slow uh and also not as powerful yeah yeah and he's uh, uh, and he he's you know he's gotten a lot more confident he'll walk people down and put power on them but he's you know still not a particularly deep striker yeah, and benny is actually like quite a bit deeper than cdf i think like he'll he'll figure out ways to land hands and kicks on you whereas it's is mostly just uh, CDF wants to pocket box you or like figure out ways to win pocket box pocket boxing exchanges and Benny can deny the pocket or ex- exchange the pocket if he just really wants to go with power or kill you on exits like the his spinning back fist KO from a little while ago was just like like him kind of finding a way to to punch his opponent who thought he was in a boxing exchange yeah and the uh, Dracar close KO is just like one of the illest sequences ever. <laughs> yeah, it, like his his kicks weren't working the way he wanted them to, so he's like, okay, I'll just like actually walk this guy like a zombie and just throw power. Because sometimes that's the read, and I think against Gamrot, that's actually like a viable read if he doesn't get pull countered for doing it. Yeah, so fuck, I mean, yeah, I got Benny by decision. Uh, I think he's just going to be able to like handle scrambles and like just fucking bomb on Gamrot with left hands and body kicks and maybe have a kind of dicey third round, but be fine. Yeah, I'd, I'm going to keep up the streak of not picking a decision and just say that Benny's going to finish Gamrot in the second round. I'm going to say body kicks uh, leading uh, to set up for a big-ass left hook. Okay, let's fucking go. Oh, and then we got uh, Caitlin Chukagin versus Manon Fioro. Uh, I was disappointed that we didn't get to talk about uh, Manon Fioro when she was supposed to be booked. Uh, well, when this fight was supposed to be booked on uh, the UFC Paris card, which was headlined by Cyril Gann, because Manon Fioro is the same fighter as Cyril Gann. She's had, like, well, I mean, she's from the same team but has also just had like a very similar career arc, which, I mean, Cyril Garn is maybe breaking away from now at this point, but, you know, she's a fantastic athlete for the division and, a, you know, reasonably uh, well-schooled kickboxer. And, you know, she came into the UFC and she was just like 
just putting power on people that were massively outmatched and just fucking wiping people out. And then as soon as she starts fighting people who are supposed to be good, she falls back on a very conservative and rudimentary Southport outfighting game where she will mostly just like circle off in one direction, staying behind a check hook and a lead sidekick. I think if she does that, she's going to lose this fight. Uh, Kaylin Chikagin puts out so much volume and moves so much and actually like actually builds on the stuff that she throws away like she's it's not all just leaf blower kickboxing at this point like she's kind of like wrote with how her offense builds but it builds she doesn't just like get stuck on the same idea and never capitalizing on like the reactions that she's getting from them so if I could rely on Manon Fioro to to just go out there and try and put fucking power on Caitlin Chikagin, I might pick her here. But um, I, I think she wants to have Caitlin Chikagin's fight and uh, the Chuke is just too experienced and consistent at having that kind of fight. I've seen her win it too many times. Yeah, I'm I'm actually going to pick against type here and say that Manon Furo is going to land a hard body shot on Chikagian and then went off of that because Chikagian has been pretty vulnerable to the body throughout her career. And Fioro hits hard enough to where I think if she just lands a, a good body kick or just decides to throw a straight to the body at some point, that it'll get enough of a reaction to allow her to snowball. Yeah, even that defensive sidekick that she's been falling back on so much, if you... If you stick someone really hard with that as they're stepping in with you, that can fuck you up real bad. Yeah, and Jukagian is like genuinely weak to the body. So it's it's not something that even comes up very much because she doesn't fight many people that even hit to the body. But Jessica Andraj, most people I, I saw picking that fight were just like, oh yeah, Jessica Andraj is going to like throw a body punch. And then that happened. So, like athletic dynamo fighting someone who's weak to the body. If the athletic dynamo sometimes hits the body, it's going to be a body shot finish. Okay, we're now on to the prelim headliner, and the fights are still good and very meaningful. Uh, we've got Bilal Mohammed fighting Sean Brady. I feel like the dynamic's pretty clear here. You've got Sean Brady, who is an absolute fucking hoss, tremendously physically strong for the division, and is a, a very solid wrestler and grappler. Um, he's kind of slow and can't strike, and Bilal Mohammed is just absolutely fine at everything. Ordering on pretty good at most things. Yeah, honestly. Um, uh, he's not the most athletic guy, um, but he like has attributes that favor him in a fight. He, he's always tremendously well-conditioned, pretty good chin, and always recovers well when he does get hurt. He's actually pretty quick on his feet. He's not weak physically and yeah i mean to say he's just fine everywhere it is a disservice like particularly is is in his own right a very good wrestler both offensively and defensively and um he's a fucking way better striker than sean brady and on top of all of that he is genuinely one of the most strategically adaptable fighters in the sport and not in the way that we were talking about that khabib or piotr yan are that they can find ways to force their game to work against a wide range of different style matchups. Bilal Mohammed straight up just changes his style for the uh, person that he's fighting. Um, and Michael Chiesa kind of fucking bopped Sean Brady up on the feet. 
So I am going to pick Bilal Muhammad. I'm going to pick Bilal Muhammad by... You're not going to pick Bilal Muhammad by finish, are you? I'm going to say Bilal Muhammad by jabbing up Sean Brady tons and limp-legging every takedown attempt. Yeah, I, I was I was a lot higher on Sean Brady when I thought he was a wrestle boxer, but now I recognize he is just a a hook on the feet, pretty much. Yeah, he's just stepping in, leading with power. It, there, there's there's no like granularity to anything he does, and he has bad defense. Looked like he was having absolute fits at having to deal with a southpaw against Michael Chiesa. And I think Bilal Muhammad can see that and be like, "Oh, I, I, I can, like, fight the lead, the lead hand and land open side left straights and keep my feet moving." Yeah, all I could really see him doing to to off put Bilal enough to actually get himself into the fight for like the minutes battle is try some takedown entries and then get Bilal reacting to it and then pop him with a left hook as Bilal ducks down. To, to try and look like or, or sprawl. He, he just needs to get takedown and clinch entries and hold Muhammad up against the fence and go for trips and stuff and try and work him from top. That didn't even get close to working for Damian Maya. It's old Damian Maya, but Damian Maya. Yeah, uh, Damian Maya obviously never the uh, greatest uh, takedown artist, and like he's very strong at the techniques that he's good at, but he's not. Uh, he's not the kind of hoss that Sean Brady is. Uh, that being said, I've, I've picked against Bilal Muhammad in his last, like, four fucking fights, and I've got to start giving him some respect because he's really good. Okay, Christian, this podcast is really fucking long, and I don't care about the rest of these fights. A- a- anything to say? <laughs> uh, we got the Ooze versus Nikita Krylov. The Ooze man. That's going to be all right. Yeah, that's going to be all right. It should be silly and violent, but might not be. And Vulcan Uzdemir should win by knockout easily, but he probably won't. Yeah, and then there's a, a bunch of other fights that are pretty decent, but they're more like real good prelims, not really anything to talk about. Yeah, stuff that I would talk about if they were like main card fight night fights, but we, you know, we, we had some real shit to get into this week. Uh, you know, I'm going to say about Carol Hosa versus Lena Landsberg. Landsberg knows how to clinch. It's going to be a fun fight. Yeah, like. Lucas Almeida versus Baratukagov. Probably be good. That should be one of the better ones. There's uh, Muhammad Bakayev. He's a really big prospect, and they're trying to set him up by knocking out or easily submitting Malcolm Gordon. Might not be that easy. Might be that easy. Who knows? Got to see it to know what happened. Bakayev is too early in his career to like definitively say he's going to beat someone that has the amount of experience that Malcolm Gordon has. Malcolm Gordon also pretty chinny and not the smartest there you go. Um, we could probably give uh, this similar kind of treatment to most of last week's card as well. There is a couple of things I do want to touch on in some degree of depth, though. Um, of course, main event, Alexa Grasso defeated Viviana Araujo. Boxing masterclass. Uh, Alexa Grasso just kind of like did one-twos on resets and and like snapped Viviana's head back a ton. Wasn't very much grappling in in the whole fight. Uh Grosso just just really concisely was was jabbing and and landing one twos and then occasionally would land power if she really wanted to. 
but she's just not a powerful hitter. And Viviana Arujo just kind of got caught cold against Andrea Lee. Because I saw Alex Grasso land about the same power of punch that uh, that Andrea Lee had landed on Arujo. It just didn't affect her because Arujo was like paying attention. Yeah, um, Grasso won in the way that pretty much everyone expected her to. I mean, I was honestly kind of surprised seeing what a massive favorite she was coming into this. And yeah, she didn't look physically outmatched. Uh, what little grappling there was, you know, she got put on bottom, but it didn't really lead to anything. And there's just not like a force on top or anything. It's pretty, pretty nullified to be. Yeah, um, she will commit to to that if her opponent lets her basically and if she tries it and it's not just like a clear path to victory then she'll get away from it yeah Alexa Grasso was just able to be the significantly faster and more well-schooled boxer yeah uh we we got to see Jonathan Martinez low kick TKO Cub Swanson in Cub Swanson's official I am an old man performance yeah, Jonathan Martinez kicked the fucking shit out of Cub Swanson. Cub being um, a very uh, fucky striker, I think is a, a fair enough thing to say. He's always been a very fucky striker. He just was athletic and could kind of get away with it. But he had weird things that I feel like wouldn't have been a problem in his prime if he could still have the power to land hard with his fucky mechanics, but he doesn't anymore. He was doing sidekicks and trying to land lead hooks off of it, but he couldn't really get the sidekick to land because he was too slow, and he has a bad lead sidekick to the leg, and he couldn't really get his left hook to land with power because his left hook, though powerful, has really bad mechanics on it and always has. Yeah, this fight did... You know, it did certainly occur to me watching this that, like, bantamweight was actually probably never a good move for Cub because he's never just been able to enter range normally against a competent striker, and he came up in a time where there weren't any just, like, well-schooled kickboxers, and he, and he feasted on that. Um, and being a reach and height disadvantage didn't really matter if if his opponents were significantly slower than him and couldn't catch him coming in or uh, keep Cub off of them with just like a concerted ranged striking approach. So it probably always just helped to to be the, the like really quick dynamic guy. And we just saw in this fight that dynamism is not really there anymore. You know, Jonathan Martinez has the kind of liabilities on the back foot that he, you know, could be imminently do-ho choyable if Cub still had the dynamism to just chase Jonathan Martinez around, punching him over and over again, and uh, wasn't there. And, of course, uh, Cub has always struggled with low kicks. Yeah, I think Cub Swanson at this point would have been better going up to 155 if he had just become cubby, chubby cubby. Because uh, just like stylistically, he would be small, but he doesn't really—he's never gained an advantage from being large, and he—he he would at least be fast and able to put power on people. Well, and he had the thing that every old guard legend has when they go down in weight, where he wasn't even bigger than his opponent. Yeah, like the the old guard is is small. Like they're they're it's dwindling in numbers and size. And just he was. You know, he wasn't going to be able to go down and become a title contender like Jose Aldo was. Um, you know, he should just stay at featherweight and have some fun legends fights for, you know, what, what 
has got to be the tail end of his career. He's 38 now. He's been fighting since 2004. Just lost to someone that's definitely not a bad fighter at all, but lost someone that definitely not, not really who you associate with a Cub Swanson level fighter traditionally. But or, or the or the kind of fighter that you think of as being a nightmare style matchup for Cub Swanson. Yeah, like in hindsight, knowing that this is the version of Cub we got and how he actually fights at bantamweight it kind of just seemed like an unwinnable matchup because martinez could take cub's power yeah you have to see it to know that though like cub looked so slow and anything he used to do that was creative that kind of led to him getting finishes is just not available anymore at bantamweight because he doesn't have the dynamism for it like against darren elkins it was kind of his last hurrah to to look ill as fuck because it's against a slow guy who's also about the same size as him and is kind of a layup if, if he doesn't get taken down in the first round well and is a slow starter yeah. who normally has to get his ass whooped in order to find his way into yes a fight. if you need to get your ass whooped like if, if to you, beat cub swanson then you're gonna lose yeah or, or you better be fucking brian ortega yeah and even then it was like brian ortega if he didn't have the checkmate ability to just fucking oh cool you, you've been choked then it was going to be a real fucking rough fight for him like up swanson is is a genuinely a very good striker and i'm not trying to say his inefficiencies make him a bad striker um it's just that he's a guy who kind of needed his athletic juice to to be able to to kind of maintain his style into later years, which he just isn't able to anymore. It happens to the it happens to many of the best of us. No reason for us to expect him to still at uh, thirty eight. No, and it was it was really like I was pretty dejected watching it, just seeing Cub Swanson get stuck on a move. Like he was trying to lead sidekick. It, it he's not good at it. He was overextending with it. He was trying to put too much power on it. He was putting himself in bad position to get countered. He was he was leaving himself on one leg too much. The point that he had to sit down every time he got low kicked. Oh, and Herb Dean fucked up the stock. He he did the fucking uh, Jorge Masvidal Donald Cerrone thing fucking twice on this card, where someone like gets knocked out at the end of the first round, and then the horn goes like as you w should be stepping in to stop the fight. And the horn goes, and he's like, oh, okay, it's just the end of the first round, whatever. And then Cub just had to get shit kicked for the whole second round after getting dropped, like, twice at the end of the first. Uh, it was it was, it was was whack to see uh, a legend like Cub Swanson just get fucking fed to the wolves like this. Because Cub is a fucking legend. Like, go look at his... Go look at his record and, like... It's impressive just on the names that he's beaten, but if you look at like everyone who he has fought, he has fought literally everyone. It's fucking insane. Yeah, and if you look at... Uh, like, There's nowhere that it says that a referee is supposed to pay attention to what time it is in the round when deciding whether or not to finish no. the fight. Like, It can be literally during the last second, like on a millisecond basis, that you stop a fight of a round. Like, there's, there's no like, oh, well... The round's about to end. I'll give him a little bit more leeway. Like, no, you don't get more leeway. The only time you get that is when it's Herb Dean refereeing or a few other referees. You can also stop the fight after the horn. Yeah, yeah. And, and not to say that context doesn't matter, but that is not context that is relevant to stopping a fight. 
or it's it's not supposed to be in the, in the refereeing. Like that is dangerous as fuck. And Herb Dean is eventually going to get someone killed. Crazy, it hasn't happened yet, but that's just a testament to how tough people actually have to be to get into the UFC. Like if we have Herb Dean refing more uh, like squash matchups, then they if they're not enough of a squash matchup for someone to just get fucked up really badly and finished, then it's pretty possible like someone's going to die if he doesn't correct his refereeing approach. Oh, uh, Dusko Todorovic uh, outlasts Jordan Wright's uh, trying to be a NCAA wrestler and then uh, finished him. Jordan Wright made such a horrible miscalculation. Yeah, this is, this is what Jordan Wright does now. You know, action fighter gets knocked out a couple of times and then has to start wrestling. He, you know, he should have tried to do classic Jordan Wright shit on Dushko and tried, just tried to get him out there before he could even... And it came close. He nearly knocked Dushko out while Dushko was rolling for a leg lock. But uh, he didn't. And Dushko Totorovic you can knock him the fuck out, but you can't break him. And if you don't, and if he senses his opponent breaking, he will just fucking walk them down and destroy them. Soon as he came out for the second round, he was not having any funny business. He just walked up to Jordan Wright and just fucking punched him until until, he, until the fight was over. It was a very classically disappointing fight by Jordan Wright because it's like the one fight out of his UFC run that he has a good chance of winning if he just fights like himself, but then he just like, Oh, well I've lost by getting fucked up by people that I can't do my a game to guess. I'll change my game. Like, no, don't change your game every time. Just sometimes dude. Yeah. And then gets finished because he fights against type in a way that does not service him in the matchup. Yeah. Um, Rafael Alfonso. Yeah. We, we, we got, we, we, uh, we got it the wrong way round on our old guy hedge, but it was nice to see one old guard legend pick up a good win on this card. Rafael Asuncao, uh basically took Victor Henry to school. Nobody was expecting this. He was a huge underdog. Every analyst was just like, why do you even need to analyze this fight? Asuncao is just washed, and Victor Henry's really offensively dynamic. And not only that, looked fantastic in his UFC debut, where he took out another, like, uh, underground sweetheart old Brazilian counterpuncher. Um, but one who, despite being old, is, like, essentially in his fighting prime in uh, Hannibal Selosh. Um, But we really didn't key into just, like, the different kinds of like defensive fighter and counterpuncher that Rafael Asuncao is compared to Hanny Barcelos, where, you know, Hanny Barcelos is a, a, an aggressive counterpuncher who wants to invite exchanges. And Victor Henry was able to like freeze him with feints and then throw away stuff to get Bar- Barcelos to throw back and then counter the counters. Whereas against Asuncao, who just kept his feet moving and stayed behind a jab, you know, Victor Henry couldn't freeze him with feints because the Sun's was just like wise to the positions that Victor Henry wanted to get him in uh, before he was actually going to sit down on hard uh, committed offense. And, you know, when they got to those positions, he was just always ready with like a nice clean counter or just a slip into the clinch where it turned out he had a dramatic strength advantage because Victor Henry is not the biggest bantamweight and Rafael Sun's used to be a lightweight. Yeah, I would also like to add, um, I think that, the fight in the first and third round are very competitive and you could find an argument for Victor Henry winning the fight, but it is kind of like not, 
necessary. Like I, it's fair. It's completely fair to give a Sun Tao the fight. Um, I I scored it for a Sun Tao, but I do think it it was mainly just the fact that a Sun Tao is more of an MMA counterpuncher than Barcelos is, and it really made Victor Henry have difficulties because Barcelos is a counterpuncher in a more traditional sense in that he'll try and like stay within range and then juke you and then land a punch while well, Sun Tso, he'll just hand fight and move away really far um, or, or like collapse distance like collapse a lot of distance if you try and enter aggressively on him and he'll pick off a single attack and then try and defend from there rather than trying to pick off eight consecutive strikes and then try and do something like a Sun Tso is I'm not saying that he's like a worse counterpuncher than Barcelos. That's why I'm saying like he's just a very different type of counterpuncher. He more uses range to insulate himself rather than uh, his reaction speed or shot selection. So it was just a lot of a Sun Tzu moving backwards out of range of Victor Henry, who wants you to plant so that he can counter the counter. But if you bait out the counter from Victor Henry, then he's just going to you can just counter him. It, it It's not... In hindsight, I completely understand why he absolutely fucking demolished Tony Barcelos, but then got kind of masterclassed by a Sun Tso. Yeah, it makes sense now that you look at it. It's another one of those. Yeah. Um, but it was still, I thought, uh, an absolutely tremendous performance from uh, Rafael Sun Tso in a fight where everyone was counting him out. Um against a really dangerous guy. It was you know, it was his first win since he beat Rob Font in 2018. He was clearly very emotional to to get back there. Um, you know, put put a lot into it to get to here and you know, he talked about retirement. If he does, then what a win to to have to call it a career on, but having seen this, I'm like yeah, he was fighting like ridiculously dynamic offensive fighters at the top of bantamweight like the worst guy he's lost to is cody garbrandt who is at least a huge puncher um having seen this there's a bunch of fights i'd still pick rafael asanso in pick him to beat dominic cruz pick him to beat jack shaw probably yeah like no one was picking victor henry over him because they think that asanso in his prime is is an easy matchup for Henry. Like I think prime for prime, Asun Sao probably just beats the fucking shit out of Victor Henry. But I didn't think he was in his prime. I was thinking, I mean, oh, he's, he's very old. Well, yeah, yeah, he's not. Like I was thinking, oh, he's very, very old. That makes sense. He he would he would get fucked up by a guy who understands like the baseline of how to beat a counterpuncher. But it's just a very different type of counterpuncher matchup. Cause like not all count not all counterpunchers are the same counterpuncher. And if you look at the matchups that Sun Tso has lost, now with the added context of who he can still beat, even this diminished, it makes sense that he got knocked out by physical bulldozer Ricky Simone, Cody Garbrandt, who baited Sun Tso out into coming forward and then countered him with some fuck shit, Corey Sandhagen, who Sun Tso still looked good against, but it, Corey Sandhagen is just provably elite at this point. And also has a ton of reach and understands how to use it to defuse counterpunching. Yeah, and and then Marlon Rice, who another physical force that had already lost to a Sun Tzu and then just fucking destroyed the shit out of him. Um, like he just came out and finished him in three minutes. Like put put a big shot into his face and then guillotine him. Like that's that's entirely fair to lose to. And then you look at his matches before and it's like. 
he's still kind of winning and losing to the guys that he was he was winning and losing to before. Yeah, would you would would you pick Rob Font to beat him now? Yeah. Eh, yeah, probably. But nonetheless, what what a fucking guy. Guy's got wins over TJ Dillashaw and Aljamain Sterling. And close to prime Marlon Marias as well. Pedro Munoz, fucking Jorge Masvidal. He's a beautiful man. And like before his recent string of losses, his last uh, care loss was to Eric Koch, who is one that was in 2011. And Eric Koch now is a fucking welterweight. Like he's a big fucking dude. He fought so many guys that ended up uh, going up a weight while since I went down a weight. And in some contexts, went up two weights because since I was 145 for a stretch, I believe. Yeah, he was 145 until uh, the KO lost to Coke, and then, then he went down and fought Johnny Eduardo. Yeah, so he, he's just had a very strange career. But still, what a career. Like, uh, maybe the greatest fighter to never fight for a UFC title? I think that's a lot shorter of a list than the greatest fighters to never win a belt. It is. And I uh, think I think he's like the guy who who should have gotten title shots and didn't because yeah. he very much could have been the champion at certain instances. Yeah, and it wasn't like, you know, a Tony Ferguson thing where, you know, t- Tony Ferguson got fucked over by the promotion a bunch, but he also just had a bunch of bad luck with fights falling out and taking interim belts and stuff. Like, straight up, like, Rafael Asuncao, you know... <laughs> He either there was just like one guy who could beat him to get to the title shot, or the UFC would just like keep feeding him matchups over and over again until he eventually lost and got pushed out of the title picture. You know they 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 fucking trinaldoed him. It's what happens to old Brazilians. Looking at his record from the first TJ Dillashaw win to the Rob Font win, he could have gotten a title shot at any point during there. All that the only loss during that stretch is against TJ Dillashaw. Uh and it was a decision. So and it was in 2016. So that was like prime TJ. You still could have given him a title shot off of like one more win. And then he didn't get it off of two really good wins in Algerine Sterling and Marlon Rice. So like he deserved the title shot. And he was one of the biggest indictments of the UFC's matchmaking as a whole. The fact that it requires so much more than just winning the fights. Yeah, so so if, if he is going to take a fight, I'd really like to see him get a fight with someone like Dominic Cruz or, or even, even Frankie Edgar. Yeah, those are neat ones. You know, just like Legends matches and the kind of fights that a Sun Sal always deserved and he just always got passed up for and he might still be able to get some shine off. Alonzo Minifield knocked the fucking piss shit out of Misha Serkinov. Yeah, that happened. In like a minute, he just walked up to him, bombed on, bombed on him with a left hook, and Serkinov turned away and got hit with two more hooks and died. That'd be happening to Misha Serkinov. Uh, Nick Maximov's leg fell off. He got jabbed a bunch and just like moved in one direction into right hands over and over again. But Jacob Malkoon doesn't have the offensive dynamism to put away a one-legged fighter, even though he's, you know, he's just pretty good at what he does. Yeah, he had a very, it's it's the motion of the ocean that matters performance. <laughs> yeah, uh, where, where is Nick Maximov on uh, penis nickname status right now, Christian? I, I think like dick adequate. Because he he showed that like he's very dogged, but he he doesn't really have like 
either firepower or uh, like creative skill with it. No, like his, his penis is is very like it. It is what it is. It's it's not like he, he's not wowing anyone. But you know, give him enough time, he'll he'll get the job done. Yoanderson Brito, fucking hosta guy, subbed him easily. Just a physical mismatch. Um, uh, Pierre Rodriguez Sam Hughes was just like Pierre getting pushed back but then occasionally doing like oh I, I do a punch haha and it, it was it was just very limp like Sam, Sam Hughes was trying but Pierre Rodriguez was just a lot stronger Tatsuro Tyra had a really good performance though yeah fantastic you know uh, CJ Vergara could have been a hard matchup for him just on like being aggressive and athletic and good at scrambling um, none of that shit mattered. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ty- Tyra looked really solid, and like, yeah, CJ Vergara is not easy to outgrapple. And he got on his back, uh, attacked a few chokes, wasn't there. Transitioned to an armbar, got the tap. Shit was real slick. Yeah, Tetsuro Tyra is a really fucking promising prospect. Definitely. Oh, and uh, Pete Rodriguez made Mike Jackson look like a can because he is a can. Pete Rodriguez is not a can. Yeah, last week you insisted on talking about this fight. I was like, why? And then, no, 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 I totally get it. This was like, this this was some fuck shit because you look at the guy's records uh, uh, like uh, on a first glance and you're like, oh, well, this is reasonable matchmaking. You know, neither guy yeah, just is on probably of UFC. Yeah, neither guy is probably UFC level. <laughs> he said, Pete Rodriguez is a fighter and he's like aggressive and really dangerous. And he just like walked Mike Jackson down with hooks, and then like Mike Jackson was doing a bunch of really like bad, over exaggerated head movement up against the cage, and got kneed into the shadow realm in uh, one minute and thirty three seconds. Yeah, if you look at basically any MMA gym in the U.S. and you find just like the best guy in the gym that guy will fucking shit stop Mike Jackson. Like, people that are really putting their entire life's goal into being a fighter are so much better than a guy like Mike Jackson. It's just simple math. Like, you see, oh, Pete Rodriguez, that guy who had an undefeated record before fighting someone who's probably going to be a contender at welterweight very soon or is, at minimum, really good. He even had some success in that fight before he just got wiped out by the guy who's like way better and experienced and yeah. bigger and more athletic. Yeah, and then you know you look at Pete Pete Rodriguez. He is five and one, but he also had uh, eight fights in the, in the amateurs, and he he fights people for a living. It's like his entire thing. Like he wants to fuck people up, and he's fucking dangerous. Like he hit, he hits hard, and he's really aggressive. And especially like he hasn't had a fight go out of the first round in his entire pro career, win or loss. Yeah, there's no reason to expect fucking Mike Jackson to be the guy yet. <laughs> so yeah, weird, weird fight. Uh, like Pete Rodriguez might be one of the fastest starters in the UFC right now, just on inexperience and not knowing when that is or is not a good thing to be doing. Because you look at his pro results, he has a, a win in 10 seconds, a win in 41 seconds, a win in a minute 25. This is actually one of his later finishes. Like, this is in the middle yeah, of the He took, took his time with this one. And, like, even in his amateur career, it's, like, round one, round one. He had a loss by decision, round one, 
Round one, round one, a bunch of it's under two minutes. Yeah, but anyone that's ever going to try and pick an actual fighter um, or pick against an actual fighter in this type of matchup just to be funny, like, it's, it's not funny. Like, Mike Jackson's going to fuck him. He, he gets knocked out in that fight 100% of the time. I don't even have a problem with Mike Jackson personally. Like, he seems like a, a cool enough guy. It's just like, why, why is he here? Yeah, it's just disrespectful to fighters who are actually doing his career. It's also kind of disrespectful to Mike Jackson for them to even put him in this matchup because it was predatory matchmaking. They knew what was going to happen. Yeah, like the UFC knew exactly what would happen, of course. Like, they, you see a guy that is not good and should not be in the UFC, and then you give him a guy who is good and probably shouldn't be in the UFC, but also is definitely going to be in the UFC at some point, even if they hadn't given it to him now. Like, he, he was clearly on his path to getting in the UFC. He, he does body punches, hits hard, and can take a punch. He's good, he's good at fighting. Okay. Uh, yeah, if you enjoyed this content and all the other great stuff the Fight Side puts out, please consider supporting us on Patreon where a pledge of $5 gains access to a huge library of really great quality analytical fight content. Also gains access to a Discord server where we have a great community, interesting fight fans from a variety of backgrounds. We're always having great discussions, getting together in the VCs to watch fights. It's always good fun. You should come hang out, support the fight site. This has been the Forbidden Technique podcast. You can catch us next week where... We're going to talk about all of the fucking wacky shit that goes down on UFC 280 and I guess preview a UFC Fight Night card headline between a featherweight contenders match between Calvin Cater and Arnold Allen. That's cool. We'll catch you then. Peace. Later. Later.